Well, good morning, everyone. As um, has been indicated earlier by that video and by my colleagues today, we are tackling a tough uh, problem today. We're talking about the um, problem of pain and of suffering, which uh, if you showed up here today hoping for a boost of happiness, I am sorry that um, we are going to let you down this morning, but I hope when you leave you have a boost of peace in your heart. Uh, we are in week three now of a uh, series called Explore God, and we here at Christ Church are linking arms with 800 churches in the Chicago area and walking through these same questions together week after week. Uh, Dan Meyer is in Florida this week for his birthday. He left us with the polar vortex, and he stuck me with solving the problem of pain. So um, if you want to talk to him about that when he gets back, that would be great. He'll be preaching next weekend. We live, as most of us know, in this bizarre world where at every moment people are both rejoicing and mourning at the exact same time. Tonight, as we all know, over 110 million Americans will tune into the Super Bowl, and all the Tom Brady haters will be cheering for the LA Rams, and some of us won't watch the game, maybe we'll tune in more to the commercials, or the hot wings, or the pizza, or whatever it is that excites us about this thing, this phenomena that's sort of become this national holiday today. And at the end of this game, as we know, there will be a winner, and champagne bottles will be popped, and Gatorade jugs will be poured over the heads of coaches, and sportscasters and family will flood the field, and confetti will drop from the sky, and there will be massive celebration. And at the exact same time that all of us are indulging and rejoicing and watching the game, Pain and suffering will go on. And war-torn, ravaged places in this world where famine is acute and fear is an everyday reality will continue to move forward. And children will be hungry. And homeless people will huddle on the streets. And hospitals and operating rooms are open during the Super Bowl. And surgeons will come out of the OR wringing their hands and looking at a family and will offer a diagnosis that is painful or tragic to receive. This will all happen at the exact same time. Babies are born and cry their first breath at the same exact time that someone breathes their last. We, as parents, some of us will send our children into the privilege of an education, and at the same time, other children who walk through the doors of schools will never come home. I remember the first time that my son, who's now a high school student, when he was a kindergartner, came home and explained to me that they had done a lockdown drill at school. And I thought to myself, really? kindergarteners because he had all these questions about violence in school and he was five and I actually stupidly thought to myself do we really need to do a lockdown drill with kindergarteners and then Sandy Hook happened this is the world where we live why can't just the good stuff happen why can't we experience joy all the time 
Why is there pain and suffering? Is it God's fault? How, how did this world that we share get like this? How did this happen? I grew up in a family that camped a ton. My parents would drag us around the country to every national park that they could find. And I remember riding in my parents' giant full-size Chevy van, and we would pull up to all these different places and some adventure would wait for us. And one time in particular, we went to a quarry a limestone quarry where we were allowed to go fossil hunting. And I was quite small, and I've had this story told to me, and I sort of remember it, but apparently we were trolling through this quarry with my dad's ball-peen hammer trying to find all the right rocks to crack open and find some little snail or flower or some other thing, this fossil. And I was apparently under the impression that you could just walk into this quarry and pick up a fossil. And yes, I'm sure some rocks cracked that way, but those were long gone. What we were looking for was the right kind of rock that we could crack open and see if a fossil was inside. But I just kept picking up rocks and saying, Dad, is this a fossil? Is this a fossil? Is this a fossil? And I was quite energetic and quite chatty, and I think I was driving my dad bananas. And he kept repeating, Honey, that's not the right question. The question is, is this a rock? that holds a fossil, and he kept trying to teach me how to look for the right rock, and I just kept picking things up looking for daisies. And he kept saying, no, you're not asking the right question. Is this the right rock? Is this the right rock? And on and on it went, and I exasperated my father by asking the wrong questions. And I think when we come to pain and suffering, we often ask the wrong questions. I think sometimes we're like kids clamoring around in a quarry, picking up items and asking God, why did this happen? What's going on? Why did you do this? Those are natural responses to pain and suffering, but they're not ultimately the right question. The right question is not why did this happen and who's responsible, but the right question is where is God when tragedy happens, where is God in my pain? When life changes abruptly, when something awful befalls us, when pain and grief become our norm, we do naturally ask a series of questions. Some of them are quite practical. Who shot the gun? Who misdiagnosed things? Who was driving the car? Who missed this? We wonder if I could go back and do that day over again, what would I have done differently? Should I have left five minutes later or arrived five minutes earlier? What happened? Who's responsible? And it's a natural question that we ask of God. And so to be fair, yes, there are some philosophical and theological answers that we can provide to this question, and I'll posit a few here in just a moment. But the reason, why did God do this? The reason that is the wrong question is because the answer to that question will never settle the grief in our hearts. Every theological answer I provide for you today will never settle the pain that some of us feel because someone we love has suffered a tragedy. I lost one of my childhood best friends a few years ago. She was very young and very vibrant. 
And no answer to this question will ever bring her back or put the family that she left behind back together. So if I have all the theological answers in the universe, it still doesn't get rid of the ache in the grief. So in some ways, we will never satisfactorily answer that question. But what we can answer with great satisfaction and peace is where God is in that pain. And how do we find the God of the universe who is with us in it? Now, why is there evil? Why do these hard things happen? Why not just Gatorade jugs and champagne bottles and celebration, Super Bowl style, all the time? And some of you know the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. God, as we're told, creates the heavens and, and the earth, and he creates this robust, beautiful, brilliant experience for humanity where we dwell unencumbered with God. We walk with God in the garden. We have the lavishness of creation spread out before us. We do not yet, at that time, know pain. Adam and Eve did not know evil. They just knew the presence of God and all of the joy and goodness therein. And so they were said to have loved God. But can you really love God? Can you really choose good if good and love are the only option you have? How do we love? We have other choices to make and we choose the option, we choose the object of our affection. Because we had other options and the one we chose is then truly the one we wanted and the one our heart desires. And so to have our hearts at its fullest desire for God and so that God wouldn't be a God that forces love upon us, he creates an option. He creates the tree of knowledge of good and evil as it's said in Genesis. And he says, you have all of this. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. If you make that choice, which I'm providing for you so that you have free will, if you make that choice, it will not end well for you. You will know, you will have knowledge of good and evil. Evil will become a reality. And Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit of that tree. And all of human history changed in that moment. Evil and terror were unleashed in the world. Scripture says instantly their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Scripture goes on to say God starts looking for them in the garden and they hide from God. Shame and fear have begun to creep in. They end up banished from the garden. There is a curse unleashed on humanity. And we find ourselves here today, the errors and the propagators of that tragedy. C.S. Lewis says this is, unfortunately, the reality of free will. And this gives us the opportunity to love God properly. He says, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. So when we find ourselves at times asking the question, 
God, why did you do this? The right question there is probably, God, why did you let this happen? Some of the evil in this world is brought by one of us against another. Most of the calamities we cannot blame on God. A decision is made by a driver of an automobile to drink him or herself into a stupor before they get behind the wheel of a car and they have a head-on collision and they end up taking the life of somebody else. That was a decision made by one human being that injured another. And the laws of this universe that are ordered and logical, the laws of physics, laws of gravity and such, they hold. And so if you crash a car, there is a consequence. We cannot shake our fist at heaven and wonder, why is there famine in this world? Why, God, would you let so many children go hungry when the reality is there is enough food? God created this world with enough for everybody. And it is our pride and our politics and our prejudices that have kept human beings from working alongside one another to ease suffering for century after century after century. These are the ills and the evils that we bring to the world. And when earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes and disaster descends from the natural world, we read in scripture in Romans 8 that the evil from the garden infected even the dust of the earth. And Paul says that creation itself groans, it heaves, it it rocks, in anticipation of its own release from the pressure of evil. There is evil in the world. Jesus himself lays this reality out for us. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. He says it plain. You will have trouble. This is not going to be easy. Life will not always be happy. And here's the good part, though. He also says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. I am with you. I am with you. I have overcome. I have overcome the world. At the end of time, at the end of human history, the Lord will come again and set all things right. So in between now and then, and the reality where we all live, where grief and tragedy and ache and trauma happen, what are we to do? Where are you, God, in our pain? One of the most brilliant places to turn for the answer to this good question are the Psalms. The Psalms are songs, they're poetry, they're hymns that were sung by the ancient Israelite community to get them through their moments of pain and suffering. And they held to these songs As a community, they turned to them over and over again, and they were authored by real-life people who were finding their way through the tragedies of their time. It's believed that this psalm, Psalm 42, was authored by King David, who was no stranger to terror and trauma, and that he possibly wrote it for the worship leaders of his time, the sons of Korah, it says in Scripture which were the temple musicians, the worship band at that time. And this is how this psalm begins. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants 
for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. There's an old worship song from the 70s or 80s, As the Deer Pants for the Water. It's a lovely little melody that brings peace. And when I read this psalm, that um, song gets in the way. Because this is not an image of Bambi meandering through the woods to find itself at rest at water. David is likening the state of his soul to a deer crashing through the woods, through the thicket, probably on the run from a hunter or some other danger that cannot help but crash into the water with tremendous thirst as the deer races through the wilderness and finds itself water, so my soul pants for you. My soul is desperate. The tragedies that face me are too great. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. My tears have been my food day and night. Those among us who have been through tragedy know this feeling. I can't eat. My whole world was just turned upside down. Some of us go days, weeks, months without eating, without living because our tragedy and our grief is so deep. And this is where David is. My, my tears, my tears are all the food that I eat. And meanwhile, for this psalmist, he says, while people, while I struggle like this, people say to me all day long, where is your God? Not only is he struggling, but he is actually heckled perhaps by those around him who say, ha, where's that God of yours now? If he was real, there would be no tragedy like this. And this is a time in history when gods and goddesses abounded, when almost everything that happened in human nature would be blamed on some little malicious god or goddess, and they believed that if you struggled, that you must have been out of favor with your god, or perhaps your little god wasn't the real god. And this is the god of the universe, of course. But those around David have questions. Where's your God now? So he's struggling and people are questioning his God. And so he says, these things I remember. To balance himself, he remembers. As I pour out my soul, I remember, he says, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Now, commentators suggest that this festive throng is a feast or a festival, a holiday season that they would have celebrated. The temple and these festivals were everything for the community of Israel. Their entire universe shaped and fashioned itself around the liturgical calendar of their temple and their traditions, and they were all together in community. And basically, he's remembering the good old days. He's remembering that Christmas before the tragedy. He's remembering what it felt like when everything seemed to be intact and he wasn't aware yet that terror and tragedy would befall him. And so he thinks back to the better times 
And then the psalm takes us back into his grief. And he asks, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And he's asking himself the question, and this is a fascinating pivot. Because we can, and at times we do, shake our fists at God and go, why did you do this? And the question he's asking here is, what what is wrong with me in this moment that I can't trust God, that I can't lean into God, that everything I've ever been told in the good days about the Lord have somehow vanished from me now? What is disturbed within me that leaves me unable to connect to God right now? He seeks these answers to his questions. And in the moment, re-ups his faith. And he says this, so put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. I'm struggling, so therefore I will remember you. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, from the places that are as far from Jerusalem as they are near, from everywhere I travel, I will remember you. I will not run from you. Deep, he says, calls out to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. In your waterfalls. Now, if you've ever swam at the bottom of a waterfall, you know the sound of the pounding water. You know what it feels like to go underneath it and have your head kind of slammed with this water. And as we know, there are waterfalls that people wouldn't dare to swim under. Ones we look at from the bridge or the lookout, pull out from afar. Imagine the tumult under Niagara Falls or some of the epic waterfalls in this world. And he is likening his experience to getting pummeled and turned over and over and over and churned and pushed deep, deep, into the waterfall. And here is what, this is my favorite part of this psalm. From that place, he says, deep cries out to deep. The depths of his grief call out to the depths of God's grief. And in sorrow, they find each other. God carries every tragedy and every grief that has ever happened in him. He absorbs and consumes them, and in the heart of God is the depth of all of our sorrows. He knows our sorrow, and he knows more than just our sorrow. Imagine the grief of God in the garden when he said, you guys, isn't this great? You can have everything. How beautiful it is. Have fun, and we were like, yeah, I think I'm going to choose evil instead. I mean, that must have grieved him greatly. And for all of human history, we have attacked and maligned one another. We have taken one another's lives. And so God eventually says, I'm, you know what? We got to fix this. I'm going to send my son to you, my beloved only son. Surely this will help right the ship. And we murder him and we string him up on a cross And we take again the gift God gave us and we destroy it. 
And every grief that we've carried and every grief that is God's is in the deep. And so if you've ever wondered, does anybody get what I'm going through? Because my neighbor just looks really happy and is just going on with their life while I'm struggling over here. The answer is yes. The God of the universe will find you in your deep. And when your deep cries out to his deep, you will begin to find your way through the tragedy. Philip Yancey is a wonderful writer and speaker who travels the whole world and talks about God and writes books and all these beautiful things. And he has had the privilege of praying for many, many people in many places throughout his years of ministry. And he once told um, a story about the, the recap of these prayer experiences and said that his experience is that when he prays with Americans in American churches, they pray very different than folks in other countries pray at times. And he has said that in some of the most um, tragic places on earth, that they pray together and the prayers are that God would get them through tragedies, that God would connect them in the deep, that they would be um, with God and that God would get them through their tragedies. They do not pray for their tragedy to be taken away. They pray that they would get through it. And Americans largely pray that the tragedy would just vanish, that everything bad and everything painful would disappear. Clearly, I am an American. I like that idea. I like the idea of pain disappearing. But the reality is that life doesn't work that way, and we need to pray to get through it. And this is how the deep cries out to deep. And then the psalm ends this way. He talks, he says, By day the Lord directs his love, at night, his song is with me. When things get dark, right, God is with. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me. They say to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Why can't I get over this? And then he ends with this, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I will wake up, I will rise up, I will live my life, I will find my God, I will open my eyes under the water and in the dark, and I will see that the Lord has been with me the whole time. I will find hope, I will pray, I will sing, I will cry, I will weep, I will look into the face of a stranger who gave me an act of kindness in my moment of need, and I will recognize there the God of the universe calling out to my deep. I will have hope. Paul talks about this hope in Romans 8, and he talks about the hope for God's presence now but the ultimate hope we all hold, which is that at the end of time, God will come and set all things right again. And we will be resurrected into an eternity of glory and worship without pain and suffering. And Paul says, for in this hope, in this reality, as we wait for this, for in this hope we are saved. And hope that is seen an obvious answer to this problem, basically, 
Hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I want to end by sharing with you a story that comes from a wonderful preacher, a woman named Barbara Brown Taylor. She writes a book about grief and struggle. And in it, she tells this story. She talks about how she and her husband, Ed, were on a vacation. They were on Cumberland Island, which is one of the barrier islands off the coast of South Georgia uh, that buffers that part of the country from the Atlantic Ocean. And she and her husband were walking down the beach and doing what beachcombers do, looking for sea glass or shells or whatever else it might be of interest below their feet. And they literally stumble over a giant loggerhead turtle that is stuck in the sand. And if you don't quite remember biology from high school, a loggerhead turtle are those behemoth, beautiful turtles that weigh in at about 200 to 400 pounds as adults. Massive, beautiful, endangered sea creatures. And this particular turtle was female. It had come ashore to lay its eggs. And turtles like this come ashore at night, and they lay their eggs in the sand, and then they return to the water. And they usually return to the water by following the moon, the light of the moon. And one of the issues is that in modern times, these animals don't know which way to go because the light of the restaurant is bright too. And this turtle got lost and confused on the beach and couldn't find its way, couldn't find the light, and it stayed on the beach, and the hot Georgia sun came up the next day and just started to cook this creature. And Barbara Brown Taylor says she and her husband stumble upon it, and they touched its shell, and it was hot to the touch. And they went immediately, and they found a nearby park ranger. And the ranger came, and they set about trying to get this creature, this 400-pound creature, back into the ocean. And what they eventually decided to do was that the three of them flipped it over on its back, on its shell, and they put chains around it, and they hooked the chains up to the ranger's jeep, and they began to drag this creature back into the sea because they couldn't carry it themselves. She talks about how she watched all the sand go into this creature's mouth and eyes and all the turtley places that it has. And eventually they brought it into the water, and they took the chains off and flipped it back over, and they just watched it. And she said she watched as the waves came and crashed over it like waves of grief do for us, and it just laid there for a while. And at once, she said, its eye looked up at them, and the sand began to wash away, and eventually it began to move a little bit. And wave after wave after wave washed over it, and eventually it began to scoot into the surf, and finally kind of came back to life and swam off. And here's what she says. She says, sometimes, in grief, <laughs> it's hard to tell whether you are being killed or saved by the hands that turn your life upside down. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Why did this happen? Did you do this, God? Or are you here flipping me back over and bringing me rescue back out to sea. Some of 
us are in the ocean and we're swimming in the current and you're like the turtles in Finding Nemo. It's just fabulous. You're not struggling. And others are still buried on the beach. And you're wondering if you will ever have the energy or the ability to swim again. And the God of the universe is saying, I am with you in your pain. Trust that with your mouth full of sand and your eyes closed shut, that I am flipping you over and I am setting you back to life. And that you may never swim well again this side of heaven. You will probably struggle with whatever tragedy has come your way. You will ache for that for a very long time. But I am with you in the ache. And I am the God who will come at the end of all time and usher us all back into the living water, into the light that is Christ. So hold tight to that truth, my friends, in this time we share here on earth. And when tragedy and pain and suffering come, remember that the God of the universe is there. And we have to reach out as we swim at the bottom of the waterfall and get back into the ocean, we can find him in our grief. Trust that you are never alone. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of this conversation, for the life, Lord, that um, you have given us, for the places that it's hard, Lord, we pray your presence that you would help us find you, that you would help us feel your safety, that you would help us trust you, Lord, that you would help us to ask the right questions. Lord, be with those among us today who struggle. Lord, help us be a people who can both find you in our own tragedies, but who know how to help others find you in their tragedies. Lord, help us be the church for those who struggle and to be your hands and feet Help us be the ranger, the guiding presence that helps bring others back to your presence. In the name of Jesus, Lord, thank you for this community and these people who are so very loved by you. In Jesus' name, everyone together said, amen.